we see the effects of that with things like distributed ledger, blockchain. So what is the role of the bank in a world where maybe the store of value isn't a checking account or a savings account, it's a distributed ledger? Uh, so I think the biggest threat is how do you, how does an incumbent organization stay relevant in that world, right? Not having enough work. Climate change. Blended finance. AI. Skills of show the soldier. Antibiotic resistant diseases. Education. Employment of private capital for social goods. Quantum computing. How many of us remember having a personal banker or can afford to have a personal banker? The traditional model of banks as a store of value and source of liquidity and of bankers as trusted personal financial advisors is under threat like never before. We discuss the range of these threats with Alec McLaren, an MBA student, and then look at how one bank in America is finding opportunities amongst the threats with Steve Gotts, former COO and co-founder of Pivotus, the innovation arm of Umqua Bank. If you were to lay out the fintech landscape mm. to someone who wasn't an expert, yeah. just hypothetically speaking, um, how would you how would you kind of characterize it now? What does it look like? Um, yeah, it's difficult to say because it's, it's very broad and fintech as a topic or as an industry is extremely broad. Um, if you think about any financial product that you have, uh, such as a loan, your simple bank account, uh, transferring money to someone across borders, there's a technology or a system or a platform behind that, right? Um, so fintech is basically looking at applying technologies, specifically new technologies, to improve those processes right. and improve that. So it can be on the front end, uh, getting a better uh, experience from your bank, what challenger banks are doing like Monzo. Uh, it can be on the back end, looking at the way payments are structured and transferred looking at using blockchain technology behind that there's a whole different w range of applications because technology has always been kind of behind banks mm -hmm. the, the kind of system behind how banks work but it's never been that good in terms of uh, it's banking has never been technology focused right and okay. that's kind of that's kind of shifting. is that because because as you were just talking i was thinking well if you characterize it like that mm. actually all banking is fintech. I yeah. mean, there's like, like yeah. right, there's no, Pretty much. there's no banking now yeah. that can happen without. Yeah, and but, you, you, so some underlying technology. Yeah. But then, you know, what is yeah. it about new technologies that are doing something different now that wasn't possible before, rather than just making something faster or better? Or yeah, simpler? yeah. I think it's there's a few things. One is the advent of certain types of technologies that are really proving to be revolutionary mm -hmm. and uh, applicable to banking technology around data science, around platforms, around uh, mobile apps and technology that immediately can give a service to uh, a consumer, uh, blockchain technology, technology as well. I think there's kind of core components of tech that have enabled fintech and financial services to uh, be provided by different players than banks. On the flip side, banks have uh, looked at their models and especially after the crisis, They've looked at their, you know, the way they operate and and understood that it's not sustainable. So the banking side has looked at that, and also the the regulatory side has also right. looked at uh, how banks work and looked at the scenario where we are even today, where you know most banks uh, dominate the retail banking. You know, there's five or six banks in the UK who dominate the retail banking mm -hmm. landscape. 
uh, is that competitive? Is that fair to the consumer? Regulators have, have looked to actually actively change that. So it's kind of a few moving parts, but it's it's largely been driven, I think, uh, personally, I think, by the strength of technologies that have come through and 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 shown a real applicability mm-hmm. to financial products. FinTech is often talked about in relation to retail banking yeah. and consumer providing better consumer products. Yeah. Monzo, for example, TransferWise. Yeah. On the other side of banking, you know, mm-hmm. providing liquidity credits to businesses. Is there any moves on that side mm-hmm. where fintech fintech is making a difference? I think. On that side, it's almost more interesting because the path to profitability is a lot easier. Okay. You don't have to... A big issue with the retail side and challenger banks like Monzo is that they're, they're well-funded, they can do a lot of marketing, they can build up you know, a customer base, but that's expensive. Right. Building up a, a huge customer base from scratch is very expensive. Yeah. Their like, cost of customer acquisition is, is upwards of £250. Um, so how do you match that with... A product that's not immediately making a lot of money. Mm. Their business model is to gradually, you know, develop that product suite and to start to make money from it. It's you know that path to profitability is long. Mm-hmm. Uh, whilst if you develop a B two B solution around a specific product, you can immediately sell some contracts or, or build up a customer base quite quickly. So, in the in the part of banking I used to work in, one of the products was all around trade finance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're seeing a lot of applications of blockchain technology around that because uh, the it's still used today, but the system of letter of credit, so just guaranteeing a payment from mm-hmm. someone who wants to ship a product abroad, used to be done and still is in some parts of the world uh, with fax machines. Right. Right. So people would fax a document saying, this bit of kit or product has arrived at a port. Uh, I'll sign uh, your letter to verify that. Mm-hmm. Uh, same goes, uh, you know, next step in that supply chain or that process, and that's been the kind of default way the product works. Um, so blockchain is a great use case for that. Yeah. In the means of you know just providing uh, a smart contract around the steps of that supply chain. Because I applied for a TransferWise account the other day, mm. I think it took up a grand total of about five minutes yeah. of my time yeah. to get a debit card. Yeah an account number yeah. in like four or five different currencies. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Like from a customer point of view, it's incredible. But from a kind of, does anyone understand the yeah. models they're using to be able to produce that enough to regulate them? Yeah. I've, so I think the FCA and regulators in the UK and other markets are being uh, a bit more sophisticated in terms of how they uh, approach innovation. Uh, you can't just start their service and, and start selling financial products. Um, but they're doing it in a way that one is looking to protect uh, the individual investor or consumer, which is their, you know, one of their you know, utmost concerns, uh, and two, not uh, stifling a, a growing industry that's going to be more and more important for the UK. Following my conversation with Alec, I caught up with Steve Gotts, entrepreneur in occasional residence and SBS alumnus, to hear about how he future-proofed one West Coast bank. Uh, You're here today, hopefully, to um, cover some of the future of finance topics, which is great. And I'd love to start by asking you, um, just for our audience, to uh, describe your background and what you've been doing most recently with Pivotus. Sure. So, uh, 20-year career... uh 
I think the, the common theme or steel thread across that career is uh, spent, spent working with big companies uh, that are in industries at inflection points, uh, trying to figure out new ways to, uh, to be relevant to their customers. So everything from uh, the music industry, financial services, oil and gas, healthcare, aviation. Uh, I, I've been lucky enough to, to get to spend time in a lot of verticals and observe the repeating patterns in those, in those verticals. Uh, two years, or two and a half years ago now, I uh, was the co-founder of Pivotus Ventures, which was set up as a subsidiary of Umqua Bank with a fairly broad mandate to think about the future of financial services and how does uh, a regional community bank fit within that future and how do they remain relevant to their, to their customers. So um, we're going to be able to dive into mm -hmm. to what you did, and it's a really exciting sort of solution that you've been talking to us uh, here at Said for a couple of days now, mm -hmm. which has been great. Um, but just to kind of go uh, macro to begin with, sure. what is the threat that banks are facing? And kind of, in you know, we always like to try and take like a layperson's explanation to this. So right. how would you, um, for those of those not familiar with, with banking, mm. how would you kind of characterize that I, threat? I, I think the, the, the biggest existential threat, and uh, uh, my colleagues at, at Umqua uh, talk about this a lot, is, is the idea of relevance. So... Uh, banks used to be very relevant to their customers, right? They had a product that was absolutely necessary. But in a lot of ways, the, the product has become transactionalized. It's become commoditized. And we see the effects of that with things like distributed ledger, blockchain. So what is the role of the bank in a world where maybe the store of value isn't a checking account or a savings account, it's a distributed ledger? Uh, so I think the biggest threat is how do you... How does an incumbent organization stay relevant in that world, right? What services or experiences do you need to deliver to the consumer to, to maintain that relationship? And, and if anything, expand that relationship into the 21st century. I think that's the, the biggest question that lots of smart people are thinking about. And I, one of the things that has struck me listening to you talk about this story um, is it's really interesting that that insight came from Umqua, which right. you might expect, um, I wasn't familiar with them mm -hmm. before because I'm from the UK, but um, they seem to have had a really strong relationship already with their customers. So right. it's, you might have thought they might be, um, I guess, complacent around that, but they seem not to have been, which is interesting. No, and, and I think you know, that's, a, that's a pattern that I see over and over again. So transformation, kind of recognition of that existential threat seems to be something that needs to happen from the top down. I think you need to have an enlightened executive team. I think you need to have an enlightened board of directors who recognizes that it's not business as usual. Sometimes it is, but in certain cases it's not. And that's more art than science, figuring out if you're facing an existential threat. And when you do figure out that you're facing one, the question is, what do you do? How do you respond? Right? Uh, I think uh, Mark Francesca talks a little bit about this. I think sometimes when you when you pursue an average strategy, you get a below average result. If, if you're facing an existential threat, doing what everybody else is doing may not deliver you the, the lifeboat that you need. Uh, and what we saw at Umqua Bank was an executive team led by Ray Davis at that point who recognized the nature of banking was changing. There was a board of directors behind him who recognized the nature of banking was changing and they were willing to to put the organization out there, allocate resources, allocate data, and create a team, which was essentially a moonshot team. The mandate was, 
go figure out how to pivot the bank. Ray named us, right? So the, the idea was, you know, I need you to pivot us, right? As oh, that's where it comes from? Yeah, so, so Ray, oh, that's Ray, very cool. Ray is okay. a, uh, an amazing individual, and um, he likes to name things what they, they do, right? So it's not, it's not IT, it's the Technology Advancement Group, right? It's not, it's not the Umqua Digital Ventures Lab, it's Pivotus Ventures, right? Because he needed us to pivot, pivot the bank. Uh, and that big, bold, decisive mandate uh, really kind of fundamentally altered our way of how we looked at the opportunity um, and how we thought about, well, all right, what does it mean to truly pivot a regional community bank, a $25 billion bank? How do we protect them? How do we prepare them for the next 100 years of growth in the financial services sector? So there's some really interesting strategy questions which you've mm -hmm. kind of raised that, but I'd like to sort of take us through quickly kind of what you did with Pivotus and, and some of the, um, the solutions you came up with. Sure. So, uh, you know, I think one of the, one of the fascinating parts of, of Pivotus for me is so one, one that, that it was set up, that, that was an accomplishment there, and credit to Ray and the board for doing that. I, I think the next credit goes to Ray and the board for, so this organization was set up in September 2015, uh, and what they did at that point was Ray left us alone. He gave us the headspace of four to five months to go figure out what does the future of banking look like. When, when we were brought in, myself and my partner, Oren Goldschmidt, we weren't told you need to go this, you need to go do that, or this is what the future is, go build that. We were given the, the flexibility to build our own investment thesis. And, and that's what we did. And to build that thesis, uh, we went and we spoke to employees in the bank, we spoke to other startups, we spoke to consumers. And, and in that period of time where we had the freedom to explore the opportunity space, we start to develop this really interesting thesis. So uh, Umqua has always been an organization uh, that prioritized customer experience and the community. Uh, the challenge for Umqua is that community and customer experience was tied to the physical store, the branch network. You, when you go into the store, it was, it was fantastic. They gave you coffee, you could co-work out of the store. It was a very pleasant experience. Uh, but we all know that football traffic is down across the industry. People don't go into stores anymore. Uh, and that's an existential threat if you're a regional community bank because what we saw is there's no way, there was no way to deliver that same kind of personalized experience through a digital channel, that connection with the customer, to let the customer know that they're special, we know who they are, and we're here to have their back. Uh, so we started to build out this thesis that says let's think about how we go backwards to go forwards. Let's think about, can we use technology to engineer the human back into the customer relationship? Can we do that at scale? Can we use the human for what the human's good at, which is empathy, disambiguation, connection with the consumer, and use technology and data analytics for what it's good at, which is spotting patterns, tracking, uh, understanding context. Uh, and if you put those two together, we came up with this really idea of human digital banking. You know, it's banking with a human touch. And if you can get back to that, right, if you can get back to that relationship with the customer, that unlocks new ways to be relevant for the customer. And that's what we've, we've been focused on for the last two and a half years. And it's resulted in BFF? Yeah, so it's resulted in a product called the Pivotus Engage platform. Uh, you so didn't come up with the best financial friend name? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> best financial friend was a, was a joke, right? So okay. we were sitting around the table thinking about what we named this. Uh, 
And we're like, really, it's, it's your BFF, right? It's somebody who has your back, right? It's somebody who you can turn to and ask any question at all in a non-judgmental way. Uh, and this person's here to help you. And, and it was one of those things where it was tossed out by my partner as a joke. And, and it just stuck because there was no better way to explain what it was. So to the customer, they see the BFF app, which is your best financial friends. The platform behind that is called the Engage Platform. And the idea with the Engage platform is really about delivering customer intimacy at scale. It's about catalyzing one-to-one connections between a customer and somebody who works for the bank who's there to have that consumer's back, who's there to help them through good times and bad, which is what a banker used to be 20 years ago. We're just using technology to deliver that through a new channel. Today, it's a digital channel. And this is a proposition that's uniquely tailored for regional community banks, right? Because that's how they've always always competed. It, it, it may not be the right solution for the top five, top 10 banks, JP Morgan Chase, uh, Citibank. This, this might not fit within their customer engagement portfolio, but it certainly fits within the portfolio of a bank that prioritizes customer engagement uh, uh, at a very deep level. And that tends to be community banks that do that. So, and you've had a really interesting reaction from other mm-hmm. people in other locations. So nationwide, mm-hmm. um, I saw uh, the um, Credit Union of Australia, yeah. um, and I think a couple of others. So clearly this is this is not a, something that's um, yeah. just for Umqua. It's, it's, it's having wider resonance. Yeah, so... And how we got to that point was really interesting. So we got started. You know, Ray, Ray gave us this amazingly broad, powerful mandate to figure out how to pivot the bank, right? So that was the first thing he said. And then the, set, the second thing he said was, I want you to collaborate. I want you to go out there, and I want you to find like-minded organizations who we're going to work with to figure out the future. And and uh, and at first, we, we kind of looked at him with this confused face because we're like why like why why would they work with us like why why would they give us capital uh to create new technologies and um and what ray understood and we didn't at that time was that uh if you're a bank uh, regardless of where you are whether you're in the u.s you're in the uk you're in the netherlands or you're australia you have the exact same problems football traffic is down your ability to be relevant through digital channels is waning um, and there's an opportunity for banks to come together to solve shared problems in a non-competitive way. So very quickly, we were able to connect up with our friends from Nationwide Building Society, uh, De Volks Bank, which is the Netherlands' fourth largest bank, uh, Credit Union of Australia, which is Australia's uh, largest credit union. And what we found is these are like-minded institutions, institutions that care about the customers, care about... Uh, adding value to the customer's lives and not about just cross-sell and upsell, right? It's about new ways to be relevant. And uh, very quickly, these organizations came together. And for us, as a, as a startup with a mandate to think about pivoting the industry, to have four organizations across four geographies who are all helping you think through well, what does it need to do? What, do? what should the strategy be to engage with customers in new ways? That, that, was, that was magic for us, right? Because all of a sudden, you know, if you're a startup, oftentimes you're off by yourself in Silicon Valley trying to solve really hard problems. But when you can get really close to a small number of incumbents, understand how they think about the world, how they think about the opportunity, uh, and you start sharing ideas and learnings, that's when really exciting and magical things start to happen. And presumably that 
that closeness is a function of a slightly different startup journey, right? Being right. founded from an incumbent rather than kind of out of grad school or, or you know, yeah. some of the other stories that we yeah, hear. And I think this is something... So there, there's this emerging zeitgeist in Silicon Valley, which is we're entering the age of the big company, right? So this idea that... Uh, if you're a startup, what do you need? You need data, you need distribution, you need customers, you need capital. Uh, guess who has all of those things? Big companies, right? Banks have all of those things in spades. What they have challenges with is how do we move quickly? How do we validate ideas quickly? So there's an opportunity to think about how do you co-create new capabilities? If you're a startup, I'd much rather work with a company. If, if, if we can get around all the friction, all the transaction costs of working with a big company, like they're slow, sometimes it takes a while to get contracts, if you can remove that, it's a really powerful combination because as the entrepreneur, you're allowed to create, right? It, what we had with Ray at Umpa was he gave us the mandate, pivot the bank and don't worry about money. Go create, go figure out what we need and do that. Uh, that's a very liberating mandate. Yeah. Not having a venture capitalist behind the scenes on a quarterly basis asking for updates, asking for what does product market fit look like, asking what's your monetization strategy. Having the leeway to explore the art of what's possible and, and then an organization, multiple organizations, who will allow you to go explore that with their customers, that's valuable. And I think the opportunity is to think about how do you formalize that? How do you put in place new governance structures? How do you remove the traditional transaction costs of working with big companies for a whole new generation of entrepreneurs? And if you can do that, there's this really interesting symbiotic relationship that develops between the corporation and the startup mm. entrepreneur. I'd love to come back to that because I think that's a really um, interesting area to explore. But I just want to ask a couple of questions about BFF. And, and the first one was about kind of quality of relationships and what you yeah. maybe learned about human relationships online versus offline. Because sure. there is, um, particularly when we think about social media, uh, there is increasing kind of calls that the quality of relationships we have online are certainly nowhere near as good as the ones we have offline and yeah. but also aligned with that uh, sort of re research that shows that regardless of whether you, what you see on Facebook is positive or negative mm. it makes you feel equally bad so even if I feel superior or inferior I'll, I'll ultimately feel so so what, did you learn anything around um, what things people are happy to discuss with their BFF online yeah. versus where they still want to go into store yeah so I, I think there was a so early on, uh, so Facebook re released a white paper as a, about millennials and money, and mm. they did a really interesting research on how millennials think about money. And one of the, and we came across this paper, I think, 20, 2015, early 2016, and one of their observations is that 50, 51% of millennials don't have anybody to talk to about money. It's not their friends, it's not their family, and it's not their banker. And as a result, what would happen is people would make irrational decisions, right? Rather than going into a branch and talk to somebody about money which is uncomfortable, they may feel judged, they wouldn't do anything, right? They wouldn't save for retirement, they wouldn't think about putting a budget in place. So we're like, that's a really interesting statistic, right? Money is this loaded topic, it's this taboo topic, yet people need to talk to somebody about money, right? In America, most consumers are financially illiterate, and that's a systems failure, right? Organizations, like banks, have failed their consumers. So, like, how do we fix that? And 
we had this hypothesis that what if we could connect to a customer through a digital channel? What if we could a consumer could connect with the same person over and over again? Wouldn't they develop a relationship? Wouldn't they develop a level of trust with that person? And if and if we can get to a trust-based relationship, which was what banking was 20 years ago, right? 20 year, years ago, the banker knew your name. They were your neighbor. They knew your kids. They gave them a lollipop when they walked into the store, right? And they were there for you in good times and bad. So we said, if we can get back to that kind of experience through a digital channel, if we can use technology to deliver that kind of experience at scale, that could be transformative. So we started down this path. And the first thing we did was we, we recruited customers and we used WhatsApp. And we said, look, we just want to talk to you for, for a couple of weeks. We want to talk to you about money. We want to talk about how you think about managing your finances. And we tried to help them in, in different ways. Um, some ways we, we help customers review their CVs. We help them think about how they should be planning their career. We help them think about, well, when was the last time you, you got a raise? And what are you currently earning? And let's benchmark against that. So we did really interesting things. And what we found is that consumers needed, needed a friend. They, they needed somebody who, in a non-judgmental way, would be there to help them. So we did an experiment on WhatsApp. The results were phenomenal. We went back to, to Umqua, Ray Davis, and the board, and we said, this is really interesting. We think there's an opportunity for you as a community bank to start taking that experience, which today is tied to your physical store, and bring it into a digital channel. So, <clears throat> so we... we put the opportunity on the table, and he said yes, right? And he said, great, let's, let's run some experiments. Let's, let's create a, a facility in our Portland market. Let's find our best associates in Portland, bring them in one place, and say, your job now is to engage with customers, to chat with customers through, through this application, and let's see what happened. And what happened was consumers loved it, right? Consumers like, I don't have anybody to help me. And talking to the same person over and over again, they started to trust us, and and this really interesting thing happened. They started to proactively reach out without us pushing notifications to them. They'd open up the app and say, hey, I'm thinking about this, or I'm having some issues with that. Can you help me with that? And that was the magic moment, right? We're like, this is what banking was 20 years ago, and this is what it's going to be 20 years from now. The bank is going to help the consumers, and that's going to weather a lot of technology shifts that we're starting to see. So, I mean, and I think maybe that, that last thing has just given me a bit more of an insight, which is that the fundamental shift between an app, because, I mean, all banks have apps, right? I mean, yeah. everyone. <laughs> but they're, yeah. they're, they're organized around the banking services. They're yeah. not organized around where my money concerns are or, right. you know, the fact I'm a student and I'm, my debts are going to be the horrendous. And, products, yeah. right? <laughs> but, but consumers don't think about the world in products. Right. Consumer, nobody wants... A home mortgage, they want a home. Nobody wants an auto loan, they want a car, right? So the, the way bankers, banks have traditionally thought about uh, products is not the way consumers think about it. And, and the journey that a consumer takes to get to a mortgage, to get to an auto loan, turns out that's really important, right? So right now that journey involves going to Google, <coughs> searching for things on Google, uh, not sure what you're reading is uh, is the best advice for you, right? So there's lots of uncertainty with that um, because everybody is trying to sell something to consumers mm -hmm. nowadays, right? Google has an ad-driven model. Facebook has an ad-driven model. What pops to the top of that, of that list isn't necessarily what's right for the consumer. It's what's 
whoever pays the most money gets to the top of that list. So what we've seen is consumers are looking for somebody, an organization who has their back. Somebody who isn't constantly trying to cross-sell and upsell mm -hmm. them new products, but saying, but asking, where are you? What can we help you with? And, and authentically trying to do the right thing for them. Uh, and there, there were examples for us where consumers were coming in and, and asking for loans of specific auto si uh, you know, sizes of auto loans, and we sat down with them and were like, look, we can get you approved, but the amount of money you're asking for, I'm not sure that's the smartest thing for you. So let's, let's, let's map out our trajectory here. This is a really nice car, but what's, where should we start? And let's talk about how you should be responsibly managing your mm -hmm. money and, and growing growing in proportion to your roles and how your career develops. Like, and quite honestly, consumers don't hear that very often. Consumers don't hear that, oh wow, they told me maybe I shouldn't do something. Um, and that was refreshing. And for us, it allows us to stand out and it got consumers' attention. Yeah. So it feels like banking is not the only industry where this kind of approach might work. I mean, the one yeah. that springs instantly to mind is insurance. Yeah. But where you have the kind of power differential between a big organization where there's a lot of kind of computer says no activity right. and then kind of mass <laughs> groups of consumers. I mean, are you excited by looking at any other kind of industries at this point? Yeah, so uh, insurance is fascinating, right? So if you look at the insurance industry, there are probably five Not words you hear every day. I like industries in transformation. I'm a, I'm a strategy geek. So yeah. <laughs> Uh, if you look at insurance, they're probably five to seven years behind the banking industry mm. at, the, at this point. The, there's an opportunity for industry incumbents to look at what happened in financial services, to look at what happened in other industries like the music industry, who didn't quite frankly do a good job of responding to technology disruption, and say, what's our path forward, right? Let's, let's think uh, of a more considered and responsible strategy to think about how we discover the new of the new because quite frankly, existing innovation labs, a lot of our existing initiatives don't deliver the kind of strategic uplift we need. So I like insurance, I like oil and gas, uh, I like aviation, I like transportation, uh, I like healthcare, right? These are all industries where you have lots of entrenched incumbents and you have shifting consumer expectations. And anywhere you have kind of the, these kinds of forces at play, there's the need to think about reinvention. Uh, and I think that's where interesting things are going to happen in the future. I think we're going to see much more progressive policies around partnerships, startup engagement, moving beyond kind of the tools we have today, which are things like corporate venture capital, uh, accelerators like Y Combinator and Techstars. These have been great tools for the last 10 years, but I think they need to evolve for the next 10 to 20 years. Great. So um, I'm just want to kind of maybe do a little bit of future gazing, mm -hmm. building on that. So specifically around finance mm -hmm. um, and where we started, you know, one could imagine that you, you talked about how the biggest banks, the JP Morgans, mm -hmm. the I don't know, Lloyds, HSBC, mm -hmm. etc., couldn't take the kind of BFF pivotus mm -hmm. approach. And, and that's kind of understandable, why yeah. not? But how are those biggest players going to transform and kind of meet the threats of the yeah. future? Are they going to be able to? Because just to kind of finish the thought, it feels like actually the levels of choice, switching, mm -hmm. kind of 
some of the power that as consumers we might be able to take back those don't none of those feel like bad things at this point <laughs> from 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 where i'm sitting so how do we kind of find a, find a way forward in the future where both banks and consumers can kind of meet happily in the middle so i think it's uh, i think it's interesting what's happening in the market especially in europe right because i think european regulators have been very progressive about using regulation to nudge the industry in new directions. So things like PSD2, the Payment Services Directive 2, which is forcing banks to open up APIs, right? these are, are fundamentally, these, these regulations are reconfiguring the way industries and companies work. Right? They're forcing them to open up, and now banks need to think about how do we compete based on, based on experience. So how does this play out? Right? I think you have uh, a small number of very large organizations who evolve into a model which is a balance sheet on demand. If you're RBS, if you're JP Morgan, you have a massive balance sheet that needs to get deployed. Uh, that needs to get deployed in new co consumer experiences. Some of those consumer experiences will be created by you, some of them will be created by startups. Um, so I think this idea of this balance sheet on demand is something that works really well for large, uh, large institutions like JP Morgan Chase and RBS. <clears throat> At the same time, I think you see continued innovation around customer experience in the mid-market sector with fintech startups like Neo, kind of challenger banks. So I think those entities continue to exist. I think they create new customer experiences that resonate. And you, you just have a reconfiguration of the ecosystem, right? So there's, there's lots of concern of what this means for the industry, what this means for startups. Um, Quite frankly, I'm, I'm not that worried about it, right? Because if you look at other industries, say like the, the pharmaceutical industry, what you have there is you have uh, an oligopic structure. You have a small number of really large pharmaceutical companies that excel at taking drugs all the way through phase three trials into uh, human testing and bringing them to market. Underneath them, you have this really rich ecosystem of companies that specialize in getting them through phase one, phase two trials. And at a certain point, they end up selling to those large, large incumbents. So I think we're entering this really interesting period where the financial services industry is going to develop in this really rich way that is good for consumers. We're going to see new experiences that are created. Some of them will get acquired by big banks. Some of them will stay independent. And I think that's OK. I think this is how you, you push an industry or nudge an industry forward in a way that is right and good for consumers. So if you were a You've spoken a bit um, in previous conversations around how the big banks have increasingly transactionalized mm -hmm. services. And every time one hears about a kind of a new application or a new tool, sort of in the back of one's mind, you kind of think, that's going to get rid of stuff. Like, that's going to get rid of people. And, and I think the interesting approach about this yeah. is not necessarily automatically just getting rid of people. But um, I guess the question is it here is, if I was a bank cashier right now, how would you be advising me to kind of hold on to my job in the next 20 years? Right. Because that doesn't automatically look like a comfortable place to be. This is, this is a conversation that UMQA is having. This is a conversation that the Volksbank, CUA, and, mm. and Nationwide, it, pretty much every bank is having this conversation. And I think what you see is the, the, the transactionalized services that can be automated will be automated. Depositing checks, you know, checking balances, like... Those are things that can and probably should be done by a machine. And that's okay, right? Because what that does is it frees up to the human to focus on what they're good at, which is empathy, connection with the customer, disambiguation, right? 
those are things that computers can't do today, right? A computer can't hold a fully conversant conversation with a customer. A computer can't express empathy in a way that a human can com express empathy. So I think the future is the fusion of these two. The human is, is, has a seat at the table and they deliver what they're good at, which is those qualities. The consumer, or the, the computer tracks trends, right? It understands it patterns. And it's the fusion of these two, which I think is the future of the industry. So if I'm a teller, and this is what we, we speak about at Umquote, right? The future of your job is really getting back to basics. It's helping our customers in ways that computers cannot help them today. Uh, and if you do that, there's a really interesting, impactful, and purpose-driven career that you're going to have. So one thing that really struck me looking at the BFF platform was um, the uh, the Umqua employees are called bankers mm -hmm. on it. And I can't remember the last time I went into a bank and saw someone with a name tag that says banker that was like customer assistant or kind of, you know, some like meaningless job title that means nothing but kind of indicates yeah. they have no power. Whereas banker sounds very well, powerful. So, so, so technically in the stores they're called associates. Okay. Uh, so, and, and on the platform they're called BFFs, your best financial friends. And, uh, you know, one interesting thing that that. Umqua has done for a long time now is created this idea of the universal associate, right? The idea of the generalist in the store. So a universal associate in the store should be able to help any customer with any query that comes in. So in a lot of ways, Umqua has kind of fought that push to specialization by saying everybody that works into this in the stores needs to be able to serve customers. Turns out that's really convenient for us to be able to take that that universal associate who was already already a generalist, and when you give them a new channel to engage with customers, they can do everything that the that the customer customer needs. So, um, I think there is a role for those those generalists, and those generalists really become a gateway into the organization. So, if you need a mortgage, right, those generalists be become your 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 guide to say, ah, you need to talk to Susie, who's a, a mortgage loan officer, because she specializes in, in mortgages for entrepreneurs, where there's not this regular revenue, or this regular income stream, and you have, and in some ways, it might be a, a non-conforming loan. Like, all of a sudden, you can do interesting things, and, and your BFF is still at the center of that, making sure you're getting the service you need, and you can now start adding specialists into that. And, and the BFF is your, win your window into that, which is how it's always been for Umqua. We're just doing it digitally now. Yeah. So I want to switch tacks and just, mm -hmm. um, with your kind of alumnus and, I guess, entrepreneur in temporary, semi-permanent <laughs> semi resident right. hat on, um, I think just reflecting back on your journey um, from Said and now mm -hmm. coming back to Said, I'd, I'd love to get, I guess, your thoughts. You've spent a few days here now and um, sort of how are you finding it and kind of how does it feel different, similar? Right, right. So, uh, so when I, I was here at 07, 08, and, and if you were graduating in 2008, that was probably about the worst time to be graduating <laughs> with an MBA. Um, so I was always interested in kind of new technologies, new companies. So when I was here, I was really interested in a career in venture capital. And obviously, uh, as the financial crisis hit, those, those opportunities uh, largely dried up. Uh, so I made a strategic decision. I wanted to go deep uh, in an area that was going to be important to, to the future. So I ended up in Ireland uh, working for a large government-funded research center. Uh, we had about 120 researchers, PhD-level researchers, doing foundational work on data and analytics. And I spent six years there. And my job was to be the bridge between our brilliant academics 
and large companies, Microsoft, IBM, Symantec, who had really hard problems they needed to solve. And, and my team sat at the center and helped translate between those two constituencies. And for me, that was a six-year PhD in data and analytics. And it was a fantastic foundation for me and how I thought about building my career out. Because out of that, uh, out of Ireland, I ended up at an early stage fund in the US, and that led me to, to Pivotus. So um, you may have this, this ideal trajectory that you have at a business school, but, uh, but like me, I, I think it's important to be able to adapt to emerging market conditions uh, and continually think about what role gives me a unique perspective or a unique capability uh, that I'm going to be able to deploy over an extended period of time. And that's what I got in, in Ireland. So uh, thankfully, I think we're in slightly better market conditions today, so I think graduates have more, more opportunities. But uh, that's the way I've always, always thought about my career. Uh, one thing I, I think that's different today uh, among the students here is, uh, you know, I think Oxford as a university is this amazing place that has so much int intellectual capital locked up in, in the walls of, of all of our colleges. And, uh, and if I'm a student today, like, that's a rich hunting ground for me to go out there and engage with the broader, the broader university. Not only just to go out and, and find a startup to, uh, to launch out of the university, but to, but to understand the, the breadth of experiences and ideas in a university like this. Uh, and think about maybe applying them in, in new ways, right? So uh, earlier this week, I was up at the mathematics department, um, meeting with a professor up there who, who previously has done a startup that was using algorithms to assess the credit worthiness of un- and underbanked populations uh, in uh, Africa and South America. Fascinating conversation with this mathematics professor because we're, we have a new set of problems now. We have... Uh, problems around fake news and propagation of fake news through networks. So I had this wide-ranging conversations about can you potentially take some of those core ideas around measuring trusts and credit worthiness that you applied in a banking context, and can we then apply them within the context of fake news? Can right. we use those algorithms to think about can you track propagation of fake news and, and think about trust in that, in that network? Oxford is one of the few places where you can have that kind of conversation with one of the world's leading experts uh, on trust and, and identity. Um, and, and if there's anything I, I would leave the students with, it's to take, take advantage of that. Because when you leave, you all of a sudden certain life's practicalities kick in and your opportunity to diverge, to explore, starts to be limited in some ways. Yeah. I think that's an amazing note to end on. Thank you so much um, for joining us for the conversation today. Sure. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate it. And, um, yeah, more next time. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Future of Business podcast. Next time, we dig into both sides of the cryptocurrency debate with two MBA students. Are they a dangerous fad or a quick way to make a trillion dollars? Or both? The Future of Business podcast is brought to you by Patrick, Michael Ann, Brody, Paris and Emily. Please subscribe in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Thank you.